Hi, welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Barber, and today we'll be speaking with Senior Trial Advisor Britta Stanton about how attorneys can successfully use persuasion at trial and what attorneys can be doing in a fully virtual environment amid COVID-19 to harness the tools of persuasion. Britta Stanton is an IMS thought leader and trusted advisor to the firm's top clients. An experienced trial lawyer herself with more than a dozen trial appearances and nearly 20 years of practice in state and federal venues, Britta has also advised clients on hundreds of cases and trials. She served as faculty for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy and graduated magna cum laude from Baylor Law School, where she also served on the Baylor Law Review. Her thought leadership contributions help clients explore best practices on topics ranging from the persuasion of juries using trial tech and demonstrative evidence to effective witness preparation. Thanks for joining. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the IMS Insights Podcast. So Britta, welcome. So glad to have you here. Could you tell us tell us a little bit about your background? How did you initially become interested in law? I think I've always been interested in the art of persuading people, Um, having that ability to talk to a jury and have them see the world the way I was seeing it was very interesting to me. And because of that, in part, I went into advertising for my undergraduate degree. And I remember my dad worked as an expert witness often at that time. And he said, man, we really need some of these things you learn as an advertiser for these lawyers to use because they're so boring and they don't explain things well to our juries. So those things kind of went together in my mind. And and I was the age in, in college that I realized I was going to have to graduate and get a real job. So at that point, the idea of three more years of law school didn't sound so daunting. <laughs> so that's when I decided to go ahead and go to law school. And I picked a school that was very big on advocacy because that's what I wanted to do. Very interesting. And then, um, so you were a practicing trial attorney, is that, that's right, right? That's correct. Since 2002, I've been a practicing lawyer and, uh, didn't resign my partnership until 2019. So what made you make that decision to move from practicing to want to want to advise clients, want to work with clients in that arena? It's something I've always wanted to do. Uh, ever since I realized there were people who just did that all day long, I remember the day that Chris Ritter walked into a conference room at my law firm and sat down with myself and my mentor And he talked about the case and he brought all these great ideas in. And I remember thinking, man, he has the coolest job. And that was, that was when my, uh, my third child was uh, still a, a twinkle in my eye. So I know it was at least 10 years ago. And I always thought he had a really great job. And I've kind of patterned my career to get into the courtroom more and more often and to work with witnesses and juries more and more often. And then finally, I decided to make the plunge and, and be, be a Chris Ritter. So, what, so now that you've made that crossover, what, what have you really been enjoying about advising clients? It's so nice to be able to come in and think only about the persuasion piece of a case, to think about the witness, how the witness is going to come across to the finder of fact, to think about how the jury is going to start to learn these concepts what visual things or cues you can use to help the jury learn these concepts, to work with an expert to make something that he or she has been doing their whole lives that's so complicated, simple enough for any jury or any judge to understand. It's really nice to have the luxury to come in and start as a blank, fresh slate with a new case and a new client and say, 
I don't know anything about this and I'm a reasonably intelligent person and this is really confusing. So let's break it down in a way that the jury's going to understand. And when I did that as a lawyer, it was much more difficult because I would be burdened with all the information that I knew. I would be burdened with all of the things I was worried about as far as getting things into evidence and how are we going to make this admissible and what do we do about that? And, oh, we should file a motion on this and let me add that to my motion in limine. Whereas now as a consultant, I come in with a sole focus of how are we going to teach and persuade? So, and that's interesting because you've had both perspectives, you know, as the attorney on the matter and then being able to come in with a fresh outside kind of neutral perspective and put those pieces together. What, what's the benefit to, to clients, to attorneys on the case? What, what is the benefit of having someone on the outside um, specifically related to persuasion to be able to come in and put those pieces together? I mean, I know firsthand that lawyers have such a, such a tough job thinking about so many different things all at once. And so coming in with a fresh perspective is really valuable. For example, if I'm a lawyer on this case and I'm fighting for a document and the other side won't give it to me and I know it's there and then I file a motion to compel and it's a hard fought motion and I win the motion and I get the document, I've spent a lot of money in legal fees and a lot of time and effort getting this document and I look at it and it's okay. But I've now convinced myself that this document is the cornerstone of the case. And I'm so mad. And I want to tell the jury later how hard I had to fight to get this document and how the other side was trying to hide it. But as a consultant, I can come in as a blank slate and look at the document and say to my client, oh, it's not really that important to the case. And I don't have that emotional attachment to that fight that I've had already. So that's easier. And then the other part is being a lawyer kind of shuts down your creativity. Legal writing, while persuasive, isn't creative writing. And lawyers think in lawyer land and in word land. And consultants can come in and help the lawyer figure out how to translate word land into a place where most jurors are more comfortable, which is with bigger concepts, with graphics and infographics, pictorial ideas, and ways to speak to the different types of juries or jurors that you're going to get in a case that you're not stuck in word land and leaving your jurors behind. That's interesting. So you talk about creativity and, you know, when you and I've had some conversations about storyline and theme. And so how, you know, as an outsider, or if I'm just thinking about storyline and theme for the first time, how important is that for building a case? And how do you help clients put those pieces together and tap into their creativity to, to really make it go? We always ask clients to tell us the story of their case. And it is very common for clients to come to us and say, well, obviously, we need a timeline. And that's true. You almost always need a timeline in a case. So the way you actually craft the order of your story and create plot and drama is very important. And it can be hard for lawyers to break away from just a chronological, here's what happened first, and then this, and then this, and then this. But a lot of disputes, especially commercial disputes, which I've worked on a lot in my lifetime, they're about missed expectations. And so if you start at a different point in the story, perhaps start at the place where the expectations were set and then show how they were missed and then show the representations that created the expectations, that type of storyline can create a lot more drama and interest for the jury. And at the end of the day, you can have a really great story, but if the jury is too bored or if it's too complicated for the jury to listen to it, you're probably not going to be persuasive and successful. So creating an actual story of the case is different than just giving a chronological timeline of the things that happened. There's always an opportunity to create some sort of drama, you know, where you look at your client and you think, 
well, they were disappointed or they were shocked this happened or this isn't the bargain they thought they were getting. There's always something like that. And so to pick out that drama in the case is really valuable for the jury who ends up listening to it to be interested and excited and want to right that wrong. Without disclosing anything confidential, have you, do you have a favorite case where you, you know, you, you, you helped a client use story or theme or drama in a way that really was compelling and really helped, you know, bring that victory about? Sure. I mean, we do it all the time. And a lot of times it happens with the order of telling a case. But one of my most unusual circumstances was when we represented a company that was part of making a really gigantic, complicated, expensive, and when I say gigantic, I mean physically gigantic piece of equipment. And this piece of equipment was cool. And our clients were very uncool. And so I decided, and our clients also had some translation problems. They needed interpreters to talk. They were very formal. So the the big idea for this case was to kind of anthropomorphize this piece of equipment. We made this piece of equipment. It already had a name. I'm like, let's not call it the, you know, technical name. Let's give it the human name that we call it. Let's talk about how cool it is. And when the other side attacks our story and our case, Let's make them attack this really cool robot we basically have. And so that was the way we helped the jury connect with our client. That's interesting. And you're talking about, you know, this big physical object. We are, um, you know, bringing it into the courtroom. And, and here we are amid COVID-19, you know, major pandemic, a lot of disruption, especially in cities like New York. You know, we're seeing some courts kind of move hearings into teleconference or into video conference, how can those tools of persuasion be brought into, you know, potentially a virtual environment? Do you have any, any guidelines that you've been sharing with clients or, you know, seen any questions from them that might be helpful to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Some courts are doing teleconference and some courts are doing video teleconference. I've been incredibly pleased and impressed with the courts I've seen, at least locally in Dallas, have really been pushing and and starting things as video conference. I thought we would have to do a lot more education and pushing the judges to hold a video conference versus just a telephone conference, but that has not been the case. So the real lag is coming with lawyers or their clients who are serving as witnesses in a, in a video hearing by not showing up with a video camera. So it's really important that everyone get their iPad or their phone or their laptop with a webcam and make sure they're ready to prepare and present as a video, not just a telephone conference for a video hearing or a remote hearing, because it's much more persuasive to be able to be seen by someone. You know, the court's paying attention. You're looking them in the eye as you're looking at your video camera and presenting to them and to make sure your witness does the same thing. It is vital to make sure your witness is prepared to do that. You know, I've seen some people try and do it where a witness is in the same room with the lawyer so that they're in a conference room together talking to the judge. That can be really tricky because when we're looking at video teleconferences, we're looking at them on tiny screens and someone head, someone's head gets shrunk to the size of a quarter. So if you're fitting in two heads, they're even smaller. So you have to be aware of things like that. But if you get your client on their own screen and make sure they either have a headset or are in a separate room from you so there's no feedback problems, it can be almost as effective as live and living color to have a video teleconference hearing. Also, it's really easy to use exhibits and PowerPoints or other persuasive graphics and documents to keep everyone on the same page. 
especially if you dial into a video teleconference with a separate screen uh, so that you can present things or have your paralegal or, a, or an assistant dial in with a separate screen and present things. Everyone can then see, you know, your face, the witness's face if they're testifying, the exhibit, uh, and it's all there in, in the record depending upon how the court is saving them. For their court reporters and the court reporters are really coming along on this quickly too they have drop boxes or other things set up they're telling you what kind of naming convention they want the courts are issuing orders saying you know give these to opposing counsel x number of hours before the hearing so the courts are ready so if you're if you're showing up at a video teleconference and you think you're just going to kind of muddle through on your telephone you've got another thing coming you need to get ready and prepare for those video teleconferences because the courts are they're really knocking it out of the park that's helpful and, and I've heard about some pretty successful early stage advising sessions you've had with clients recently. Um, you know, we call them mental mining sessions. Um, tell me how that has been working in a virtual environment. You know, it's interesting because we've really been pushing to try to do mental mining sessions, which are strategy sessions that we conduct with lawyers. And out of those mental mining sessions come great ideas for graphics and structures for mock trials and things like that. We've been pushing to try and conduct those remotely because sometimes it's just expensive to travel to do something with someone in person. And while I love to do them with a lawyer in the lawyer's conference room, the costs just sometimes aren't time, are, are not feasible. So we had been setting up a system where we can have, you know, two different people. So one would be me in person over video and the other would be my iPad in person over video set up and dial into the same call with the lawyers. And that way I can do all sorts of whiteboarding and, and take notes and things that everyone can see who's in the video teleconference on my iPad while I draw on it, but sit there and they can still see my face. And it works amazingly well. Um, we've known that the technology was there. We just hadn't really done it a whole lot. And now that we have these mandates to stay home, we're doing it a lot more often. And it works. It works very well. And there's a great record of the meeting and all the notes you took at the end because you've been sharing them on your screen the whole time. And could you break it down for us? Explain what exactly is a mental mining session or that early stage strategy advising? What's the, and I know you follow a very precise kind of process for it. So can you help us kind of get our heads around what is, what is mental mining? What is, what is that advising? Sure. And in some ways I like to describe kind of what it's not or what happens when you don't have it. I remember as a lawyer, you know, being very dissatisfied with graphics vendors who would come to my office, take my scribbled down notes from a piece of paper and turn them into scribbled down notes in digital ink, usually filled with typos and with no original ideas, even though I would say, well, this is the kind of thing I want to explain. And I didn't have the time or the creativity to sit there and think about this, that and the other and how we might best persuade someone and how this document or timeline might be most persuasive because I was busy working on a brief or a direct examination outline or figuring out how I was going to get which evidence in which exhibits into evidence. The focal point was different. The focal point would come and they would give me the things that I'd scribbled down on a piece of paper. But even if I didn't ask them for it, they would always offer other ideas to me. Well, here's a basic timeline like you wanted, but what if we did this? Or how about this idea? And I really felt like I got a partner when I worked with the focal point. And it wasn't until later that I realized the reason why I felt like that was because we were having a mental mining strategy session, that we were thinking about what's the big picture in our case, what do we want to prove, what are our, our major themes, and then the graphics would flow from that rather than trying to, to cram the graphics in after the fact. We would all make sure we were on the same page about themes together, 
and then we would take those themes and they would be distilled through the through the graphic process. Thanks again to Britta Stanton for being our guest on today's IMS Insights podcast and to you for joining us. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver consultative trial and expert services for the most influential global firms. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 10,000 cases and 5,000 trials, and to connect you with the sharpest subject matter experts and meaningful insights on important matters. If you have a topic you'd like to hear more about, email our editorial team at editor at expertservices.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us next time on IMS Insights. Thanks again.